When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're broadcasting live here at the Internet Law Center in the downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We have a great show for you today, and uh, we're talking with the author, Elisa Court, and she's the author of, of Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, which... Um, National Book Review listed as one of five hot books and said it is a devastating report on middle-class American families struggling to stay afloat. Court eloquently relates these families' psychological and socioeconomic predicaments and amplifies these personal stories with research confirming significant and growing income equality. Alyssa, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. And um, so... you you start off right with a, a flurry of statistics and um, kind of like a, a quick going for a first-round knockout to really make us alarmed about the, the state of a middle class today. Um, there's a you know, One of your opening paragraphs talks about you know, why the anxiety exists in middle class is that it's now 30% more expensive than it was 20 years ago, in fact, in some cases, the cost of daily life over the last 20 years has doubled, and the price of four-year degree at public colleges, once a traditional ticket to the bourgeois, is now twice as much as it was in 1996. And then you go on with health care and ownership. Um, and it, it is really alarming, I think, the state of the middle class um, today. And I, you know, what drove you to write this book was um, – kind of your own personal state of alarm after having children. That's right. I I was a freelance writer, journalist, and so was my husband. And, you know, we were fine um, when we were, uh, before we had children, you know, we had a rent-stabilized apartment, uh, we, had, we had savings. But then after we had our daughter, suddenly we were in a whole other situation. We were paying for a lot of health care out of pocket. We were, um, you know, suddenly having to pay for daycare and a nanny and figure out uh, our future. And that 
led me to realize how many workers, uh, middle-class workers like me, were now unstable professionally, economically. I started talking to my friends more openly about it, and then I started to report. I went out to the, you know, around the country, talking to, you know, just dozens, almost a hundred people about their experience, from lawyers to accountants to professors. And there is this. You, one of the very first statistics after you talked about how life's becoming more expensive was education and how how expensive that is and how you know people are laden you know being bogged down with debt and you know that applies not just to you know your your typical you know, 20 something but all these people who now because of this disruptive economy are going back to school to reinvent themselves yeah, so I call that the second act industry. I actually wrote about that in the New York Times a couple months ago um, based on the re research I'd done in my book. I went to these second act job workshops, and one of them was very um, helpful. It understood that the people in their 40s and 50s that were trying to restart their careers after their uh, professional lives were quote-unquote reimagined. That's a horrible word people are now using to wow. describe being laid off <laughs> in the village. So their careers have been reimagined, and then they were in these, you know, second act job workshops. And this particular one that I went to was, they, they understood how emotionally draining it was and how much people blame themselves. And so they didn't kind of do this whole bootstrapping thing, like, you can do it, you know, everyone can have a second act. Instead, they talked about, you know, going to sleep on time and, you know, writing a proper CV and just things that they, the, the people in the room had control over, um, you know, and, but often you, you have now uh, a whole kind of world of people who are benefiting from people looking for second act careers, uh, you know, counselors, people running certificate programs, you know, for cooking or um, other kinds of, uh, you know, you know, mechanical engineering certificate programs or there's anything you can imagine. Um, also, for profit graduate schools that are are benefiting from the fact that people are having their careers reimagined later in life, and the result is often these people wind up in debt. Um, you know, at least 17.5% of the uh, trillion plus 1.5 trillion dollars of outstanding student loan debt belongs to those over 50 years old. Wow. Um, and this was over as of 2015. So by now, it's probably higher. Um, and that, that debt is the money they're now um, taking on, having to get degrees later or feeling like they have to, or it's their own student debt, or it's the debt for their kids. So you're seeing a, just kind of a middle-aged, middle-class just swimming in debt. Which is, which is problematic. And um, you know, that means they can't consume, which and you know, the middle class is often a driver of the economy. Now, if only these people were smart enough to go to Trump University, they wouldn't have a problem. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing, and I, I return to this theme in my book, like, it's weird, you know, our pre president, not in his presidential capacity, but just in his, in his multiple business dealings and his television show, is really a representative of, of the th some of the things that are squeezing this population, these greedy and corrupt for-profit colleges and graduate schools. And these television shows that um, delude people, these reality shows, delude people into thinking that it's 1% or bust and, you know, that the very wealthy, you know, extreme lives are the lives that they should be leading or they could be leading. 
rather than, you know, uh, trying to find kind of solutions, political solutions that can help them out of their middle class struggles. So I feel like, you know, he's hiding. He's like the Easter egg hiding in in a lot of these stories, (laughs) and not just as a president, but as as a businessman. I think that has to be one of the kindest uh, uh, analogies made about <laughs> Donald Trump recently. It's like the evil is orange, the, East, the Easter evil egg, orange as as somebody just wrote on social media hilariously. Um, Halloween is a is a ho- holiday where you know the pumpkins can be triggering of <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> like this is that's extremely funny, but yes, the jack o' lanterns. Um, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you go on. Yeah, and, and and so one of the things that's really struck me was we we talk about the the growing expense and the, and obviously education, and you know there was a time when you know, there was a clear path, you know, especially for baby boomers, you know, at least the earlier in their lives, that you you go to college, you get your education. And and then opportunity was in essence just handed to you. You had this booming economy that they graduated out to, and um, you know, a college degree meant advancement. You know, almost certainly. And whereas now, um, later in life, we're seeing these highly educated people in different industries struggling. Um, and you you go through some great stories. You know, uh, adjunct professors for one. Um, journalists, um, which I, <laughs> close to home, and and then even lawyers, more more close to home on this end. Um, why don't you tell us some of those stories? Yeah, so I think the heart of my book is these stories, and um, you know, obviously, I I intend them as illustrating the broader theme of how you know middle class and even upper middle class people get squeezed nowadays, but. Um, they're also, unto themselves, very moving and sometimes brave and inspiring stories. Uh, there is a, a woman that I, I followed. Her name was Bree, and she was an a, a, a adjunct professor at a university out in Chicago. She lived outside of Chicago. And she um, was making low 20,000s after she had an advanced degree. She was teaching a number of classes. And at, the, at that point, she had a disabled son. Um, and I had done some research on her experience and the experience of other adjunct professors. That, that means professors who don't have a regular tenure job or tenure track job. They're just part-time. They're now um, the, close to or the majority of professors um, in our country are adjuncts. And one study found that 62% of these adjuncts made $20,000. So it's you know below the poverty level. And yet they also have PhDs and masters as Brie did. And Brie was also taking care of a, a disabled child. Um, she's so smart and such a lovely woman. And, you know, she even by the end of the chapter, she started a charity for other people like her that was going to other people who were suffering. Um, it's called, it was called Precaricor to um, help out precarious professors like her. And now she, I mean, one of the things about this book that was interesting is I followed people for many years. By the end of it, her life has been different. She got retrained, and in her case, it actually worked. Um, she became a, a, started doing sort of work with disabled kids, um, speech pathology, I think. And now she has her first, you know, regular job. Um, 
doing that. And so, you know, it, it's not all misery and horror, but the number of uh, number of years she had to go through in debt and fear, uh, well-educated, hardworking, did everything right, and she still couldn't figure it out um, while her kid was, you know, suffering. Um, were, was remarkable. And, and that's just one of uh, just dozens and dozens of stories that you can read and squeeze. And it, it's it's interesting. I, I, we also, when one of the other authors appearing at the book fair is uh, Sarah Kenzior, who has the book The View from Flyover Country. And she talks about a professor, an adjunct professor, uh, uh, who taught for, you know, 20 some years at Duquesne University and was making only about $10,000 and mm-hmm. in fact uh, she was sleeping in her office because she couldn't afford any other place and ultimately they she was fired at the age of 83 because they thought she was no longer effective and you know she had cancer and she died within months after that and it just it's such a searing thought that here's this you know, educated person, you know, just struggling to get by. And you, you tell a story of a professor, you know, who lives next to train tracks. Yeah, this is that professor Bree yeah. that I was mentioning, Bree Bullen. And, but I mean, there was, there was a story that was perhaps even more bleak of one of her acquaintances who was teaching um, also in Illinois at smaller colleges, a number of different ones because uh, universities and colleges try to uh you know, limit the number of classes adjuncts can teach, you know, probably involving health insurance, right? And having, right. you know, to avoid them be, so then that means that they're, instead of it being a favor to them, oh, they are only teaching two or three classes, they're not making enough, so they're teaching at a number of different classes, and then they're commuting, and then they're covering those costs, so this is what this guy was doing, and he couldn't, you know, pay for his kids ice cream sometimes, or, and he just wanted to give them piano lessons and ice cream the guy had a PhD, he was teaching history, and, you know, some of the numbers behind this is, um, you know, really interesting. At least 28% of households that used food stamps in 2013 were headed by a person with at least some college education, and if we contrast that with 1980, that proportion was 8%. So you're seeing a rise in the education levels, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people are making enough um, to avoid needing, you know, assistance. Um, and those with PhDs who received uh, assistance, federal aid tripled uh, but in a three-year period, that I, the three-year period I, in which I started considering writing this book. So, you know, that's, what, what, are, what are these degrees necessarily doing for people? And it's more like, can we afford anymore to do what we love, to, to do these jobs that are you know, about educating minds and, you know, teaching people civics and these kind of things. I mean, many of the characters in my book are people who are, should be the backbone of society and should be stable, um, and they're not. And it's funny, it reminds me of, I was at a comedy club once, and the the comedian was mentioning that uh, he had a philosophy degree. And he said, life was going great until GM downsized its philosophy department. <laughs> but, you know, you, you have these educated people struggling. And, you know, when I was reading about the the, the the various adjunct professors, I mean, does that even, are they making a minimum wage even? 
I don't know if I, I, we'd have to do the math on that. Um, probably. Yeah, because you think of the yeah, prep time, not. the class time, yeah. and the commuting. Yeah. Um, so I mean, we, you know, this is a whole other question. You know, if we have is fight when we're fighting for fifteen, it's fifteen dollars enough. You know. Right. Um, and. Fifteen dollars an hour. Because I mean, but anyway, I don't. I'm not sure if we did the math that they'd be even making fifteen dollars an hour. But um, so you make just, a point that yeah, you on. think you think the universities, when you know the various U.S. news or who are, you know, there's also this cottage industry now of rating universities that um, you know they should take into account um, what percentage of adjunct professors there are and and how they're being paid. Absolutely. So, I mean, I came up with this thing called a fair labor standard um, in the in the book, and I've been researching it more actually. And I know that I've now discovered that there's actually a group of, of uh, professors that have been organizing around this issue and actually went to U.S. News and World Report and tried to get, you know, how adjunct professors are treated and how labor is treated whether people can unionize at all, which is, you know, some colleges and universities, really, you know, fancy ones, they, they can't, um, have that be factored into how we rate the universities. Because you just think, like, everyone's worried about whether their coffee is fair trade, you know? Right. Um, and, you know, how, you know, how comfortable their cow was before it was <laughs> turned into hamburger. Like, we're not, we're sending our kids to these colleges that can cost, you know, as I pointed out in the book, double what they did or triple or quadruple what they did in 1996. And yet... You know, they're being taught by people who are making potentially minimum wage and being terribly treated and without health insurance. Which begs the question, where's the money going to? Yeah, people say it's like administration. People say it's things like, you know, and I think this is right, um, you know, football stadiums and gourmet food. And, yeah. But also like all these ways to kind of convince parents, because it's so competitive now, right, to recruit um, kids for schools unless you're in the top you know, whatever it is, the top twenty percent mm -hmm. of schools, then people go to great lengths, right? They'll have these fancy foods now, and you know, um, there are colleges with uh, high thread count sheets. You know, things that we would wow. never have expected <laughs> in the eighties and nineties. I know, right? Um, it's actually Dang, really I'm going back to school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sort of function like a, you know, the, they're like the standard. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So the money's going into play, things that we wouldn't really approve of a lot of it's like you know look at columbia university places like that probably ucla i don't know the situation but i'm sure it's going a lot it's going to real estate um so yeah so and it's interesting um but it, it is it is not going to it, the instructors and uh but one thing that we're going to be giving to is our advertisers so we're going to take a short break but when we come back we'll have more on Squeezed with Elisa Court after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. 
Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. WebmasterRadio.fm is the destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. Engage with our panel of on-air experts and peers by following us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can listen to WebmasterRadio.fm on air or on demand from our website or through iTunes, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts. Interact and stay informed. Just search for WebmasterRadio.fm. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Alyssa Court, and she is the author of Squeeze, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. And uh, this is being recorded on Halloween, and so we've already had at least one reference. And uh, are you celebrating today? I am. We're going as Little House in the Prairie family, Pa, Ma, and Laura Ingalls Wilder, even though I've discovered to my heart that she was um, really conservative and um, kind of jingoistic, <laughs> had terrible uh, attitudes through the native population, but my daughter is a Laura Ingalls Wilder fanatic, and so um, we have bonnets. Yes. That's in, I, I wasn't sure that was still in the pop culture psyche, but I guess it's what, Nickelodeon or somewhere, TV land? Well, yeah, we've been watching it, and she reads it, and yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so, which actually brings us to a, a, another part of your book, and, and it, it's no, it, it, there is no Little House in the Prairie chapter, but um, a big theme in your book is parenting. And the cost of parenting, especially for women. Yeah, so for for women, um, parenting, well, it depends. It's less parenting and it's more um, our experience in the workplace. I mean, we we may, uh, we we tend to be paid a lot less um, even than our childless peers, right? Uh, There was a study done that people said they'd pay women with children $11,000 less. And women without children, and that's forget men, and we're, <laughs> we're earning a whole lot more than all of us, right? Right. Um, and that, uh, you know, supposedly that even women who aren't, uh, let's say, uh, harassed for their pregnancies, which happens, um, it's the rate of it's, it's gone up to something like uh, gone up by 269 percent. Um, the complaints to the EEOC about pregnancy discrimination um, as of late. But, uh, 
you know, our salaries can go down by 7% per child, according to a sociology professor at University of Massachusetts. And so, uh, yeah, it's an unsparing social attitude that has economic and psychological ramifications. It experienced when we go to the job through bias. Um, it's experienced when we're trying to get hired. Um, and then it is experienced in our ordinary lives when we're trying to pay for daycare and balance um, the pressures on us while we're being underpaid. And you, you make a good point, uh, you know, talking about how even if someone you know, has been act out of the workforce but engaged actively as a mom and you know managing all these different tasks and you know involved in the the, the community the the amount that gets about as much weight as the postage stamp on the uh, on the, the cover letter yeah so you know we need to um you know have a gender neutral hiring practices right which don't uh which would it perhaps redact uh, how many years people have worked or haven't worked because that itself becomes a question or maybe get rid of the gender of the names so there isn't bias in hiring in in, in that way because that was that was something i actually wrote about in in the book that um has not got as much attention as i'd like but my first chapter was on pregnancy discrimination and I, it was really striking. I mean, I talked to airline pilots who uh, were not allowed to pump on the job and had a lawsuit uh, around that. And I talked to um, a woman who was a discrimination lawyer who had herself been discriminated against when she was pregnant. Um, she got pushed out of the law firm where she worked, and it filled her with this fury. And so she spent her whole career trying to defend other people who are similarly being pushed out. And I think the point with there is, yes, employers worry that women with kids or pregnant women work less. They're going to take, uh, you know, unpaid leave. Oh, dear. You know? <laughs> right. Um, but I think also there's a prejudice, uh, uh, prejudice that once we are becoming uh, caring and people, we're somehow not going to be good earners. We're not going to be as productive. We're not going to be as committed. And that somehow being you know, sharp thinking and uh, oriented to the bottom line can't coexist with caring for anyone. And this and affects it, mothers who are employees, but this also affects caregivers, why caregivers are paid so badly, I think. And it even affects people like teachers. That is part of why I think teachers are paid so poorly. Because once anything is associated with care in this country, it is people are economically punished for any for caring for vulnerable people. <laughs> it's wow. an, and it's a, it's repulsive. And one thing you, you mentioned, which, you know, there are a lot of definitely depressing statistics in this book. Yeah, it's a little and, depressing. Um, you know, it, it, hopefully the, if it's sold in uh, department stores, it's not near the razor blade section. But um, the there's a part, and you mentioned that moms actually are more productive in the workforce. Yeah, and I call this, I have a term for it, and this is happy. And by the way, yes, it is depressing, but I act absolutely think it's uplifting, and I'm not just saying that because I want everyone to go out and buy Squeeze, but um, it's uplifting because of things like the motherhood advantage. I found a study that showed that they looked at the work of 10,000 women after they had kids, and they were much more productive than they had been before they had kids, 
And I also looked into the neuroscience and the social science, and there are different arguments around this where, you know, uh, pregnant women are stronger uh, uh, than women who are not pregnant um, uh, evolutionarily. Um, and then there, you know, other great things can happen. Also, you can start to have leadership capacities after you give birth that you don't know you had before, partially because you're managing toddlers, you're managing right. children. Um, this one uh, scholar called this these kind of minds, the minds that children have, open structures. So their minds are so different from yours and mine that. Uh, and yet we love them so much and have to deal with them all the time, right? That we become people who can handle lots of different kinds of people, uh, more flexible in the workplace because of our relationship to our children. And I thought that was really interesting. Anecdotally, and the, when I'm talking to women um, for my book, they, they're better workers, they're more focused, they're more organized, their time is very compressed. Um, I've gotten a hell of a lot more done personally since I had a child. I've written three books. Um, I started an organization. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I just think there's a lot um, that we have to offer um, and that we're doing in the workplace, and we need to start recognizing that to fight back against the discrimination. And you maybe you've, based on that statistic and, and, and the stories you tell, maybe the it, the nomenclature, you know, that, that which is so important, maybe instead of calling it family leave, we should call it a management boot camp. Yeah, and, yeah, and that would have that would have, that would have different resonance in the workforce. That is so funny. I mean, somebody said to me, which I loved, like the the problem that I think I'm sketching out in this book is also the way that all of our lives are become work, right? Our home lives are work, or work seeps into them. You know, part of this is the digital, right? We're on the phone all the time, or the computer, right. or we're, if we're doing uh, low-wage work, we're working strange hours into the night. I write about this in the book and the terrible things that then happen when people have to work till 10 at night, moms and so forth. But what if the values of home seeped into our work life? What if we flip the equation? And I think that's part of what, you know, you just mentioned, you know, the, you know, parental leave is boot camp, but it's like, yeah, uh, what if the kind of um, famil familial intensity and the, uh, you know, acceptance that we have to have of little kids and, and their difference from us is how we work, starts to help us work better rather than, oh, yeah, we're going to turn every single family into this hyper efficient for this thing which is kind of what's happening now right, right. so now what, one thing you, you talk about is you the chapter on uber dads and and just kind of this this new economy and how people who got into careers that were supposed to be sustaining and, and give them the, the ticket to middle class life um are now forced to, to do do this, and I remember once when I, I was I had an Uber, and uh, the driver had been on a panel on, on women CEOs, and you know she, but she was the CEO of a nonprofit, and uh, you know, and she she kind of was maybe awkwardly said that, oh, well, I do this because I, I have a I have a young kid and. 
um, this is my sanity <laughs> check. I, I get, you know, I get to get out of the house and and not have anyone screaming. Um, but I, I think it's you know clearly it, 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 she's ignoring the economics of it. And, um, he bought a house in Park Slope, mm-hmm. and right before it took off, so now, you know, he's been able to. It was a tenement, so he's now renting that out and living out living on the island. So do you do a lot of sh- do you do a lot of shows or? Um, well, yeah, well, every week. <laughs> every week. This is so. This will be number three hundred something. Um, My goodness. What are we up yeah. to? Like three sixty something. Oh no, mm-hmm. three. This would be like three. This will be probably three eighteen or something like that. So. Okay. Okay. Do you want to ask me the question just so I know what it is, or uh, what is, is that okay? What was the What was the question? The economic impact. You're talking about the driver, the Uber driver. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So, we, um, one thing that struck me was that you you have this um, these people now who are in professions that they thought would get them to the middle class promised land and you know sustain them you know throughout their career are are now having to work work for Uber or, or do other jobs just to stay stay afloat. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I write about these teachers, you know, on the West Coast near you actually, um, and in the Bay Area, who are driving Uber and Lyft teachers, teachers aides at stop signs and uh, traffic lights, they're thinking about grades and curriculum. They wind up inadvertently driving the parents of their uh, students, which creates a funny service class moment <laughs> where they're driving the parents and having conversations, discover that um, they have students in their classes. And they're doing this because they're not making enough money to pay for their mortgages and their rent. Um, you, sometimes they're making what would seem like decent money in other parts of the country, Fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars, but in in California right now or New York City, it's you know can be that's a real stretch. Yeah. So that's that. But what interests me is also the way it's affected people's sense of themselves. I think Uber has a campaign, uh, or did in 2014 and 15. You know, drivers, uh, teachers driving our futures was the campaign, and it was for teachers. And there's one for nurses that teachers and nurses were more valuable to a corporation as a symbol than teachers and nurses are valuable to us as a country. You know, we don't give them enough money or support or um, praise, you know, yet, you know, companies recognize that there's, they, they have value that people trust teachers and nurses. So that seems like a kind of dark parallel right now. One thing that we value is our advertisers, and so we're going to take a short break. Um, <laughs> but we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
Content Marketing World 2018 comes to Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Learn more at contentmarketingworld.com. Content Marketing World 2018 is the one event where you will learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry. Content Marketing World will have over 120 sessions and workshops presented by the leading brand marketers and experts from around the world covering strategy, storytelling, ROI, demand generation, AI, and more. Leave Cleveland with all the materials you need to build a content marketing plan that will grow your business and inspire your audience. Save $100 off of registration using promo code radio That's radio and the number 100. Don't miss Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Register now at contentmarketingworld.com. The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for its 7th Annual International Mobile Web Award Competition. This award program is an opportunity for mobile developers to demonstrate their expertise in this growing medium. It recognizes the individual and team achievements of web professionals all over the world who create and maintain outstanding responsive and mobile websites and mobile applications. Deadline for entry is September 28, 2018. Submit your entry today at www.mobile-webaward.org. That's mobile-webaward.org. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network. We can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email brasco at wmr.fm and get your message delivered now. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're continuing our discussion of Squeeze, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. And uh, we'll be featured at the Miami Book Fair coming up. And um, we were talking earlier about you know people who were in careers that looked like they were going to get them to that middle class plateau, but either because of the economics of the area they live in or other circumstances just aren't quite getting there. Yeah, they're not, they're not getting there um, for lots of reasons. I mean, they're not getting there because of the cost of housing, because of the cost of college and debt, as we went, talked about healthcare debt. And then they're also not getting there because wages are stagnant or or relatively stagnant. Um, And it's, if you ever wonder, listeners out there, why, why, why is this not working out for me on the level I wanted? Why am I not doing better than my parents? And that, that was a question that a lot of the people in uh, my book asked. They, and then they, they answered. They said, it's my fault. I'm doing something wrong. And this is a constant refrain and a refrain in this book. And the reason I don't think it's all a downer is I'm telling the reader, it's not your fault. You know, in the 1970s, it was a sure thing that you made more money than your parents when you were 30. 90%, I think, right? 92% or 93%. And now the odds are 50-50, only 50-50 of earning more than your parents. And that was according to a study by the 
uh, Raj Chetty's Opportunity Project, Equality of Opportunity Project. And, you know, that's an objective uh, set of uh, numbers and data. So you can tell yourself this, you know, it, maybe it's not going to make you happy, but it's going to keep you from, you know, uh, flagellating yourself when you wonder why am I not doing better and I'm 40 years old, as many of the people in my book were, were asking themselves. And that, that, that is the challenging period because, you know, people at those age, 40, 50, there's, there's, so, there's this kind of um, vortex of all these things that are happening. Yeah. One is they're, they're now expensive to their employers because they have, they've been working, you know, 10, 20 years. And, you know, so the salaries are higher. They have higher health care costs. And uh, so that's an issue. Um, at the same time, their costs are increasing because, you know, they have housing. They have children now are about getting ready to go to college. And, and so everything seems to be coming at a point. And in the past, that would have been an area where they were most secure and and now it's actually becoming an area where they're most vulnerable because people are laying off people in their 40s and 50s because it, it it's cheaper that way or you know automation or some other means yeah i mean it is it it's also a head trip if you're i'm in my mid 40s when i was a kid all the people in journalism were in their mid forties, right, or fifties. Right. Um, all the people with any power and authority and experience. But now you go into newsrooms, and so many newsrooms are dominated by, as you're saying, really young people. So it's, it's kind of a confusing thing that you we were we were caught. I think a Generation X was caught between um, the digital period and then the kind of the golden age of some industries like law and and journalism, right? And the the security and the sense of ourselves, the prestige that we thought we might be easily obtaining now eludes a lot of people. Um, and, and that's a psychological and existential thing as well as an economic thing, you know? Why don't I feel secure? Why don't I feel like I've reached the pinnacle, um, you know, in this midlife period, right? So, um, and that's the piece of it, psychological and existential piece, where I think knowing that this is a uh, social or statistical reality rather than thinking that you've done something wrong can be very helpful. And, you know, I, I've, I've, you know, unfairly harped on, you know, the negative aspects and in which, in which you document, you know, through stories and statistics. But to your credit, you, you, you end with the all important question, what is to be done? Right. And I do try to really address this. I mean, in many different theaters, do we embrace universal basic income, which is a thousand to two thousand dollar a month stipend for families that would offset uh, the experience of, say, those adjuncts who were having trouble buying ice cream for their kids? That extra twelve thousand to twenty thousand a year would really make the difference for them. I mean, do we embrace something like that as a country? Um, do we try to, you know, expand paid leave for families? I mean, that to me is a no-brainer. Uh, we have fourteen percent of American workers with paid family leave um, and no national, you know, paid leave, which puts us with eight small nations, including like South Pacific Island nations. We're so behind the developed world in terms of pregnancy leave, maternity leave, subsidized daycare, pre-K. I mean, these are the things that we need to um, offer, you know, and and child uh, care tax credits that aren't just a thousand dollars right or fifteen hundred dollars but are are substantial um i also think we need to start thinking about 
ourselves differently, and this is with the psychological piece. You know, we need to start having open conversations with each other about class and social class, about economics, about, um, you know, why we have a certain size house and, you know, somebody else has, is homeless and somebody else is, right. uh, lives in a big house, have those conversations with our kids. Um, I had a great, convers- you know, interviews with this group called Class Action in Boston, and um, I write about them in the book, too, because they have these uh, curriculum for that for parents and teachers um, and school boards and things like that to adopt ways of thinking about social class in the classroom, um, where, say, one kid would do a house swap for a couple hours with another kid, who and they'd be from very different um, parts of town, say, and that both kids would have an awakening about what it means to have a happy home or, you know, uh, why one parent works with their hands and the other is a, you know, works with money or whatever, whatever have you is an abstract kind of profession. And that it's not just a stigma. Class is not just stigma. It's not just the latter. It's also a practice. It's a choice. Uh, for some people, it's a choice. You know, some of the people in my book, they may be being punished for it, but they became professors or teachers or lawyers because they wanted to, not because they, uh, they couldn't, flourish in the finance sector, say. So I think um, that's, that's something that we need to have these open conversations with family members, with our colleagues, with other parents. I mean, one reporter who reported on this, my book made a, I think maybe it was an ironic line, but maybe it was for real. Why can't parents unionize? Um, but I think, okay, we're not going to unionize parents as my, and I joked back when they asked me that, I said, uh, we don't have time. <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> Where would we meet? Where would we meet? In playgrounds? But, you know, I think that, that spirit, let's talk, let's communicate, um, let's try to organize for things like uh, universal pre-K, but also let's like talk to each other about why we can't afford an after-school program and maybe uh, a group of parents can create one and Indeed, there are characters in my book who have done it, really imaginative stuff like this, barter and trade, where they trade housing for daycare with their or neighbors, where they house yeah. sharing when they're not together romantically or biologically, but they share a house, they share meals, they share daycare. Um, and I, but I don't think those things would have happened if those people hadn't sort of come out, as it were, as being economically unstable and needing that. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that we can do for ourselves while the world burns, <laughs> you know? Um. <laughs> but, and so you have, you, I was looking at, there was one of the articles about your, your book, and there was a link to, that showed the income distribution in cities in 1970, in a whole swath of cities, like 10, 1970, and then in 2015. And, Basically, what was a middle class has now become, you know, the middle class was at one point the largest segment of the city, and now that's no longer the case. It's you know, it's the bottom two tiers um, mm-hmm. that are now the largest part of the city, and 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 how do we reverse that? Well, you know, I mean, I think one way to reverse that is to get companies that are now moving into cities and upscaling them relentlessly to pay their taxes, right? I mean, um, the other thing is to sort of create um, not just affordable housing, but affordable um, kind of 
leases for shops to keep shops in areas that are not, yeah. it's not just chain stores or the most expensive, you know, Hugo Boss or whatever. I mean, to try to keep local economies thriving. I mean, part of why you ha- you're having middle class leave is because they can't afford their rent, but they also don't even have like services locally for them, right? Everything's privatized. Um, so they, they don't have what they need in places anymore. Um, and they're being priced out, and that's just it's left um, poor, poor, poor working people living further and further away from cities and commuting in. And then you have the wealthiest living in the center of cities right. and kind of glamorous places. Um, I mean, this is the side effect also of uh, cities becoming safer. <laughs> I think instead of moving to suburbs, sometimes people stay. Um, and then they raise rents and um, but really it's a like greedy, it's, it's just greed. It's, uh, de- you know, relentless development of cities and um, trying to get my, apartments in say New York city out of rent stabilization and rent control, um, not having those protections for them, putting, making set aside where you have uh, buildings where one or two apartments are, you know, available for middle income people. Right. It's just not enough. Um, Things that I've really uh, appreciated were experiments on housing for teachers or municipal workers or firefighters. Um, I write about some of them in my book, but like it, they, they did one in New Jersey, they did one in um, Illinois. You know, there's other places where that where because municipal workers can no longer afford to live in places like San Francisco. So you're right. working for the very city that you can't afford to live in. But what if there was housing for these people, kind of a, a distinct communities that are created for them? And they, teacher housing, that's another thing they've been doing, like in New Jersey. Um, and that would be a way to also keep them from having to drive Uber, yeah. <laughs> so right. Uber is no, but also, you know, they yeah. can They can live closer, because obviously if your teacher... You know, here in Los Angeles, a lot of people have, you know drive an hour and a half just to get to work, and so if they're not driving three hours a day, um, they're definitely much sharper, and you know can can stay longer and be, be and be part of the community. You want that? Yeah, I mean that's that's part of what's missing from many of the people in my book wind up having to commute an hour and a half, two hours to their jobs. Um, which is something, by the way, as I said, the working poor has done for a long time, right? Where it's a familiar story uh, in, say, the New York City area, coming from the far reaches of Queens, as the daycare provider in my book does, to uh, take care of a little kid in the center of the city, right? And I'm sure you can give an example from L.A., um, people living in, like, Vallejo and stuff like that, or is yeah. that, I'm forgetting, yeah, um, and commuting in to, you know, the fancy suburbs and whatever, but um, that is when you're, you know, trying to hold on to like a backbone of a city like it's ordinary middle class people. It's going to hurt the city to have all these people commuting. And, and another thing it does is it creates daycare needs that are really insuperable for a lot of families. I mean, you have people now, if they're living in these suburbs far away, you know, as one character in my book moves to Lancaster. Um, California, further and further away from LA, right. um, you're paying for hours and hours of daycare when you're commuting. And that becomes another stress on families. So, right. yeah, the whole commuting thing is just problematic top to bottom. Now, you're going to be commuting to Miami where you're going to I be am. Speaking. That's a happy commute, my friend. Yes, that is. <laughs> Unless it's a yeah. hurricane, but I don't think it's November. Oh, 
Well, you're yeah. on November 18th, and uh, you're on a panel, Real Life Economics, Readings from New Nonfiction. And so we'll wish you luck on that. Um, are you coming out to L.A. at all? I am. Um, and I, I'm, I'm so glad you're asking this. I'm going to L.A. I'm doing an event um, in Irvine at the University of California, Irvine. And I'm doing an event, a private event in L.A., um, and then I'm doing an event that's going to be open to the public um, with Capital in Maine, which is an organization, and I'm doing it with David Sirota, uh, and I can find oh, yes. the address of that if you want. Um, it's on the 27th of November. Oh, but the, great. The, the event in Miami is the Miami Book Fair presentation. Right. It's at 12.30 on Sunday, November 1st at Miami Dade College Wolfson Campus. So, and it's going to be November on the yes. too. Be yeah. on, oh, sorry, November 18th. Oh, they wrote, wrote yeah. the wrong date here. Okay, November 18th, yes. Uh, 1230. That's great. Yeah. And um, if people want to follow you, because we're running out of time, if people want to follow you, what's the best way for them to do so? Oh, absolutely. So I'm at Liz Court. That's my nickname, L-I-S-Q-U-A-R-T. Um, but they can also follow our, what we do at Economic Hardship Reporting Project. So that's economichardship.org. Um, or at Econ Hardship. That's the Twitter handle. So you can kind of get like a whole world view that way and you see all the work that I've been doing there. And and part of you, you in that foundation, you work with Barbara Enright, the author of Nickel and Dimed. That's right. And so, I mean, in some ways, I do see Squeezed as a bit of a continuation of Nickel and Dimed, like what would happen if we turn the, turn the gaze away from the working poor and to their middle class corollary, you know? It's a, it's, a, it's a very important question. I think it's created a lot of the anxiety that we've seen in the electorate. And it's going to get worse as, you know, I think baby boomers and uh, the generation Jonesers and, and Gen Xs um, start approaching retirement age and, and they're nowhere ready to, to you know, sustain themselves in retirement. And I think that's going to be a, a crisis that we're going to have to face. So the book is Squeezed, which is a great book to check out. And unfortunately, we're squeezed for time, so we have to say adieu. Um, thank you very much, Lisa, for joining us. Uh, it's been a great conversation. And uh, so we have information on the author on our show notes, which are on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Check us out on Twitter at cyberlawradio. And as always, check out the Internet Law Center. We're a full-service Internet law firm at internetlawcenter.net. Thanks again to Mami Bickfair for giving us this great author and these opportunities. And um, come back for next week. We'll have more on the latest in cyber law and policy on Cyber Law and Biz Report. See you then. Have a great week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.